Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is September the 8th, 2014, and this is episode 1421 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I'll tell you what, i got a good one for you today. It's a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails, your comments, your questions, your concerns, your videos, your audios, whatever you want. You send that to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, and put question for Jack, comment for Jack, concern for Jack, whatever. Video for Jack, story for Jack, news for Jack. One word followed by the words for Jack in the subject line. And then, in the body of the email, give me one or two sentences on what the heck you're sending me and a link or picture or whatever it is after that. If you want more details, follow it with the details. But in one or two sentences, make your point, and I'm more likely to end up using your story on air, even if it's a lengthy story that I have to dig into. Uh, think of it this way. You are submitting content to a media outlet. Because that's, you don't have to think of it that way because that's what you're doing. The media outlet has one person that filters content, me, the host. Uh, I get hundreds of them a day, so you have to hit it with a punchline so I know what you're talking about so I can determine whether the audience will have interest. One way I know the audience has interest is when I get the same story from a lot of people, though, so that helps too. Uh, don't take me being hard on you or anything there. It's just I'm trying to help you guys help me. I figure I am one of the luckiest human beings on planet Earth. I have one of the largest research staffs in the world. That is my audience. Anyway, with that, before I get to your feedback, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Well, Berkey Water Filtration Systems, of course. You'll get those at his website located at Directive21.com. Directive21.com. He has a lot of really great stuff, not just Berkeys. But, hey, if you're going to get a Berkey, you're going to get parts for your Berkey, you're going to get filters for your Berkey, be the guy that goes to the Berkey guy. Don't be the guy that goes to the non-Berkey guy. Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason is a maniac with customer service. Every time I hear from him, it's somebody saying, I emailed him at like 8 o'clock at night and figured I'd hear back the next day or something, and like I heard back in 20 minutes. Um, I'm going to tell you, that's always going to happen. He does have kids and a wife and a life, but that is the kind of service that is typical of Jeff the Berkey guy Gleason. So go there first for your Berkeys. And check out his other cool stuff at Directive21.com, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storage food. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of professional instructors will help you complete the triangle of gun operator efficiency. I say it all the time, but this is the truth. You have three things to make an effective operator of a firearm. You have a gun. No gun? Sorry. You can move, you can stick, you can throw bullets, but you don't have a gun. Two, you got to have the ammunition. You have to have the ammunition, quality ammunition, quality firearm. Both of those are commodities that you can purchase them, just buy them. You can buy training, but you got to buy good training. you got to be a good student. you got to practice that training. That's the linchpin. That's what connects the three together. Frank Sharp is the man to give you that linchpin, to connect your weapon, your ammo, and your training, and your operating efficiency together. There's an old saying, you fall back to your highest level of training. I actually believe you fall back to your lowest level of training. Whatever level of training you're actually really, really, really comfortable in, in a crisis situation, that's what you're going to fall back to. Your highest level of training is the furthest you've ever gone. Your lowest level of training, to me anyway, is the operational level that you can do in your sleep. 
That's where you go on autopilot. That's where you do what needs to be done. And the better your training, the higher that level goes. Check them out today, FortressDefense.com. Next up, do consider supporting my show if you don't already do so as a member of the Support Brigade. It's how we pay the bills around here. We call that the MSB, or Members Support Brigade. For some reason, I, I hear it in emails a lot of times as the MSP. I don't know what the MSP is. I think that's Manufacturer Suggested Price. MSRP, I guess, but it's MSB, Members Support Brigade. That's where you can support the show at $5 a month or $50 a year and get a bunch of great stuff. Discounts of stuff you're probably buying anyway. In fact, if you're buying stuff for self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty in your life from guns to gardens and everything in between, your membership will more than pay for itself with real discounts, not crappy ones like AAA gives you, where you go to the hotel and go, what about the AAA rate? And the guy's like, I already gave you a better rate than that. No, these are real discounts that you can only get from me. And my supporters of the MSB, which include many of our sponsors, like Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. And uh, you can check those out in the members area. You also get some content that's available nowhere else. And you get special perks, like we're going to be doing a TSP Homestead get-together um, probably in November. Uh, details will come soon. Uh, but that goes out to MSB first, and it probably is going to be the only one we do this fall. And I'm probably going to limit it to 25 students. So that's another example of a perk that the MSB gets, along with every episode of the MS or of the MSB of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files. In the back office, you can download those as well. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Active duty or prior service, email me before you join. Service discount in the subject line. One or two sentences, who you are and what you're doing or what you did if you're prior service. Do that before, not after you join. Uh, with that, I want to tell you, we do have a huge event going on at Perma Ethos in West Virginia. I'd love to see some of you there. If you are a member of the founding members of Cl uh, Class 001, the first wave of a 1,000 students that came in, uh, you should have got an email on Saturday telling you about it, and then you should have got an email Sunday saying tickets are now for sale. Uh, I think we sold about 20 of 50. We're going to take 50 people to the first fall festival at Perma Ethos in West Virginia, in Walton, West Virginia. I uh, hope to see a lot of you guys there. So there are plenty of tickets left available. Uh, tomorrow, it will open up to all members of Class 001. So there was a second group of students that came into that class. Uh, they'll get a couple days, and then it'll open up to anybody and everybody. But if you are a member of the Founders Group and you didn't get your email, email me, jack at com. Put Founders for Ethos, Founders for Ethos in the subject line, and I will make sure you get a link where you can get your tickets if you want to come. And um, all the details are on the page. I won't give you any more than just that, except that it will be the week of October 11th, and it will basically be show up on the 9th, which is Thursday, hang out, drink some beers, get to know everybody. Classes on the 10th and the 11th, everybody goes home on the 12th. This is going to be an annual event. It will get bigger. We've capped it at 50 students for the first year, but this is going to be the inaugural event. You're going to be able to see a lot of really cool stuff. Check it out, and uh, please come if you can. With that, a little bit longer than typical housekeeping, let's get to the year that was the episode, 1421. I have today, in a word, a discovery, and Starfleet, store exploring strange new worlds, and ridding the city of injustice and Jews. That's to do with Vienna. I will actually start... Actually, we'll only cover one of these today. You can read the rest of them and get your history fix at TSP Wiki, year 1421. I will read in a word at Discovery, because I think there's a lot to be learned about this and what we take to be true from the past. 
The word discovery is tricky. How can we say Columbus discovered America when there are Indians on the shore looking back at him? The word discover comes from the Latin word to uncover in Portuguese. Descobrir means, I just made that up. I don't know if that's how you really pronounce it. I tried. Anyway, to find by chance. For navigators of the 1400s, discovery means, I found a new way to look at the shoreline and I wonder how it fits with what I already know. Unfortunately, navigation of the time is hit or miss, mostly miss. For example, 200 years later, when the Mayflower sets out to drop the pilgrims off at the Virginia colony, they will miss their destination by a few hundred miles. This was considered good navigation for the 1600s. Thus, when we say Bob the sailor discovered the West African coast, we mean Bob found something new to him, and he must figure out if it's something already known to those who sent him. Nothing more, really. So that's what it means when we say Columbus discovered America. At least that's what it meant. That's not what it tends to mean today, and we get into all kind of political fighting and all kinds of, what is the word I'm looking for? Political correctness bullshit. That's it. Anyway, uh, my take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these for, together for us on the TSP Wiki, the English language changes from generation to generation. A classic example is the King James Bible translation, completed in 1611. It's a reasonable translation of the Bible into English of the 1600s. It's held up over the centuries, but the English language itself has changed over the years. For example, in 1611, the word kill meant murder in our modern sense of the word. General killing of any type used the word slay in the 1600s. Thus, when the Ten Commandments was read as thou shall not kill, it made perfect sense, but now it needs a tweak for the modern reader, you shall not murder. It loses some of its original impact, but it is more accurate. So I think there's a lot of stuff like that. There's a lot of things that we say, well, so-and-so said this 400 years ago, but we don't ax, ax, <laughs> talk about the, 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 the death of the English language. We don't ax, uh, <laughs> we don't ax, I can't do it. I, I, I was going to try to just do it and let it go, but I can't. We don't ask what the word really meant. We don't a ask what was the significance of that word at the time to the person that spoke it. And I'll tell you, the way that it hits us the hardest right now is we don't ask it in relation to the words that are used to write the Constitution of the United States. So we say, well, the amendment says this. Well, what did it mean to the people that wrote it and the people that signed off on it? There's a level of ignorance of the American people to that language and its meaning of the time that's probably unprecedented of any nation that's ever said it valued its constitution and has done more to prove that it, that is a lie uh, in modern history. Anyway, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. I want to start out with something. It's not really feedback from one person or a story or a typical thing. It's a ton of comments about the Mark Shepard interview from Thursday last week. For those who didn't get that interview, Mark Shepard's this awesome dude. He's the head of New Forest Farm in Wisconsin, a 106-acre farm, chestnuts, apples, plums, animals grazing below it. It is the archetypal success formula for a modern permaculture farm in America. It is a proof point that we can grow food at a massive scale with permaculture methods in America today. It is the farm that, the, that if you want to be in a, a, a wholesale production mode, participating in the modern system of agriculture, you should be trying to emulate. It's that awesome. But Mark has some interesting ideas about transforming the entire nation and basically turning the entire Midwest into the permaculture farm-based system. And he brought up a lot of comments about something that I've commented a lot about in a negative fashion, which is debt. Uh, 
And I have to tell you, there were some things that he was saying that made me uncomfortable. But I actually understood the context from which they were coming, and that is very important. And I also didn't want to try to moderate too much his comments and lead Mark and I into a debate, especially since I think the majority of what we debated, if I had done that, would have been things we actually agreed upon, yet when someone talks the way he was talking and then gets onto a venue like this, if they hear resistance at all, they hear resistance to all versus to the few points of contention. So Mark's basic contention is, if you want to be a big-time farmer, so you're talking 100 acres or more, full-scale production, borrow money, buy land, put the system in and get it going. And then when you get that system profitable, pay that one off and do it again. And do it again and keep leverage. And, and in some instances, before the first one's paid off, leverage what you've built in equity to buy another farm and do it again and do it again and do it again. And of course, some people are like, oh my God, the sky's falling. And some people are like, oh, that's completely okay. And I think again, context is the most important thing here. Is this the approach I will take? No. I am not doing this and I am not sanctioning this. I'm also not saying don't do it. It's different to say, I'm not endorsing this approach. It's very different from saying, I am saying specifically not to do this approach, or I am condemning this approach. Those are very, very different. So the reason I won't wholesale endorse this type of thinking is I view people, when it comes to business leverage debt and real estate leverage debt, in one of two ways. You have the knowledge necessary to do it right, And if that's the case, if you've chosen to do it with that knowledge, what I say won't matter to you. You're going to be like, I don't care whether he thinks I should do it or not. I understand it. I'm going to do it. I get the risk. I get the rewards. And I understand how to make this work. And I'm going to set this up. And I'm going to do my asset protection. And I'm going to do all these other things that go along with it. And I could care less what a guy on a microphone says about whether I should be doing it or not. Or you don't know exactly what you're doing. And then you should not do it. Those are the two, and I think when it comes to debt at that level, you know, purchasing a 50-acre, 100-acre farm and going into the business of farming and setting up multiple entities to manage that piece of land and manage that business enterprise, that it's, there's a, a pretty big learning curve to getting there. And that's why I like Mark's advice, start out with a Schedule F. Turn your backyard into a farm on paper and learn all the record keeping and all the stories and all the inventory management and everything. And here's the thing about the people that bitch about the fact that Mark says, well, then go out and borrow money, improve piece of land, increase the equity in it, use it to buy another piece of land. It's, you skip over that whole first part. You just like, oh, well, he's just saying everybody should go out and borrow money and buy a farm. That's not what he's saying. Right? So you're missing the 20 years of study, knowledge acquisition, and, and small-time farm engagement that led up to the point 15 years ago where the man went out and used debt leverage to buy the first big farm and then used the success of that farm to buy and develop additional properties. We just leave out the first 15, 20 years. Don't worry. He's just saying to do it. No. See, and that is the problem in America today. And as tough as I am on Dave Ramsey sometimes, that's part of why he keeps things as simple and as restrictive as he does, because he knows most people, if he said, well, yeah, you can get a home equity loan to pay off your debt, in some cases that makes sense. Oh, let's go do it right now. Well, with no understanding of whether you should or you should not in your current situation. Now, I've always been the guy that will take the time to explain the individual situation to you so you can decide, how does this apply to me?
I want to say a couple things, then maybe I can help you figure out how this does or does not apply to you. Number one, the concept that debt is cancer is one of the survival tenets that this entire community and show is built on. Okay, That type of debt, though, is consumer debt on depreciating assets. If you're out buying stereos, or frankly, for that matter, in many instances, college degrees, because it's a depreciating asset, It's a, it's a, it's, in many instances, the value of your degree actually goes down over time. No, yes, I won't even get into that today. I don't want to beat up the school system. Just, I'm just saying, if you're buying something with debt, that the value of the asset is known to decline over time, that is very dumb debt. And people are out buying vacations on credit. A vacation is definitely a depreciating asset. No, it's priceless. You have memories forever. No, 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 no. You cannot tell me that your vacation to Florida drinking a pina colada on the beach has as much value to you next year when you're looking at a picture in a book as it did when you were sipping the pina colada on the beach. You cannot tell me that. Or Total Recall would be a real business because we would just give you a bunch of pictures until you believed you were there and that would be great. Okay, It's, it's not. So financing a vacation is a depreciating asset. A car is a depreciating asset unless leveraged to the purpose of income. Right? That's a business term, leveraged to the purpose of income. When you're buying a farm, if you, uh, assuming you have a clue how to manage, run, and produce revenue with a farm, you are leveraging debt for the purpose of the generation of income, and you are also doing so with an appreciating asset historically. Does that Now, one thing that Mark said that, that, that bugged me is he said, real estate, sooner or later, always goes up in price, always, 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 infinity, infinity, infinity upon infinity. And I, I it doesn't matter if sooner or later the value of the property goes up, if there's a depreciation of the property value such that it hammers you at the wrong time and you lose the dice roll in that period of something like 10 years, which for many people holding property that was purchased six, seven years ago, you're still in the middle of and the worst places to buy property, then it doesn't matter that if sooner or later it'll go up in value because the predators will buy it from you or steal it from you while it's depreciated in value or reclaim it from you because you failed to meet your obligation. To be fair to Mark, the value of property like he's developing did not go down from 2008 to 2014, by a penny. It just didn't. There might have been a little blip fart for 35 seconds or something on a commodity trading scheme or something like that, but overall, farmland has appreciated in value steadily, nonstop, since the year 2000. So it's been a good play to make. That's the thing, though. With debt, you're always making a play. So I also want to point something out that I don't think people maybe understand. There's multiple forms of debt. They just have different effects on you. Right now, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs with permaethos. But I thought you... I don't have any debt to any financial institution whatsoever. None. The company has no debt to any financial institution whatsoever. And all of the foreseeable payables for the next year, there's enough capital to make those payables and still have money in the bank. There is no financial debt from a prospect of having to repay a debt plus interest to a bank in Permaethos or from me in relation to Permaethos. But I'm in debt to about 1,300 students right now who I've promised a great PDC to. Now we're delivering that PDC and it's happening, but 
if if something had happened in the interim that blew everything up, it would have been a real problem, especially since we took some of the capital and invested it in the development of the farm before we had the product delivered. That's a debt. And it's a leverage debt because I leveraged the social capital of the Survival Podcast in the name of Jack Spirico to generate that money so that we could deliver the product in the first place. We There's no way we could have afforded to pay for a guy like Kelly Herrnan to come live at Perma Ethos without pre-selling the event. What's well, pre-sell? It's not debt. It's completely debt. It's completely debt because you're going to tell me if we had failed, you wouldn't have wanted your money back. So in effect, I've borrowed it. It's a different type of leverage. Well, the risk is different because no one can make you pay it back. Well, that's not necessarily true, but I've also leveraged the good name, the social capital of TSP and the Survival Podcast on an endeavor that's never been accomplished before. And you got to think about that. So I had to have enough belief in Kevin, Charlie, Joe, Kelly, Jesse, and Mike, their families, all the people that have come there to support us, to say, I know we can deliver what we promised, and we're going to deliver what we promised, so I'm comfortable taking out this loan, in, a, in essence, so that I can further the mission of what we're doing, because I want to do it now, not someday. And that's what properly leveraged debt is about. It's about a known quantity, or at least an assumed known quantity, that says there's enough cash flow here to repay the debt, to service the debt, and grow faster than the debt, so that in the end I'm ahead. That's business debt. And I'll tell you what, it's also real estate debt. I had one person that commented on the blog and said, no way, if you can't buy it for cash, you can't afford it. I learned that from my grandfather in the 70s. And I said, really, so are you a perpetual renter? Most people that say that have, have a mortgage on their house. Well, everything but the house. Well, if you're buying a farm you're living on, you have an income-generating asset, real property, that you live at. Right. Does that mean go out and buy a farm tomorrow? No, and here's the good news. I don't have to actually say that because if you try to do it with no farming history, no good capital reserves, and no understanding of what you're doing, no one is going to give you the money anyway. So I don't have to worry that you're going to end up up to debt and up to your eyeballs, really. But some of you could figure out how to do it without being really ready to do it. So I think what you have to understand, about again, about debt is there's there's two main types of debt. There's debt that leverages assets for the purpose of income generation and, and, and is leveraged against appreciating assets. And that debt, properly channeled and handled, is not only good, it's necessary to compete in the modern business world. And then there's debt against depreciating assets or wholesale non-valued assets, period. And what I mean by that is a vacation. There is no value to a vacation to you once you've taken it. And there's no value of your vacation to anybody else once you've taken it. And this is, well, I have good memory. No, no, this is money. This is money. This is not how you feel. This is money, right? So you and, and your four, four members of your family take a vacation and you go to British Columbia, Canada, you climb the mountains, you see mooses, you're, you're happy. And you come home. You now owe $5,000 in debt on that vacation that's done. You can't sell jack diddly shit to recoup any of the debt. If you go out and buy a $5,000 television with a credit card, this is really stupid, but you do in fact have a TV. Now it's a depreciating asset. You can't sell it for $5,000 the week after you bought it. But a year from now, 
If it's that type of a TV, chances are you can sell it for $2,500. So it's actually worse to buy something like a vacation on credit than a TV. At least you could, in theory, recoup some of the, of the, the debt through the, 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 the sale of the asset. So that's the classification of what we'd call a bad asset. Then you've got what I consider middle-of-the-road assets that can have debt leverage against them, like a vehicle. Well, if your vehicle takes you to work and back, it's part of your business system. Okay, It doesn't mean you need a $100,000 debt against a Lamborghini to go to work and back. But there's a, a reasonable expense necessary to go to your business and back, to your job and back, or to your customers and back. And that can be a leveraged asset for the purpose of income generation, even though it depreciates in value. And if we put it into a business class asset, we can actually depreciate it and take it off of our income to the government. See? So it can be valuable that way. The other thing we can do is we can lease it. <gasps> That's horrible. I thought so, too. I thought so, too. Until I, I looked at, at my most recent vehicle and said, you know what? If I lease it, I'm going to spend about $3,000 or less a year on it. And after three years, I'm only going to be in a position of $1,000 in difference. If I wanted to buy it at that point, I would owe about $1,000 more against buying it than I would if I had paid them $9,000 more. Oh, well, that doesn't mean I think I'll lease it. Plus, I can just give it back and walk away. And then if you take a leased asset like a vehicle, you put it in the name of the company, and the company leases it, It's 100% expensable because you don't own it. It's like renting, so it's an expense. So there's all different questions that have to be answered when it get into debt and income and revenues and generation. But if you just say all debt is evil, then what you're saying is there's this huge piece of the economy that I'm not going to play in, which is totally okay. The best comment in the whole thread from the Mark Shepard show, was Insidious saying, I'm so glad that Mark Shepard wants to do things the way Mark Shepard wants to do them. And I'm so glad that Jack Spirico wants to do things the way that he wants to do them. How do you want to do what you want to do? Because if you want to own a 10-acre homestead, make enough income to pay for everything in your life, okay, get it paid off free and clear as quick as possible, Have some sort of a little small community action thing going on on your own property. Maybe put in a couple rental units and rent those out, but do those as a pay-go, so pay-as-you-go type of thing, etc. Then your goals are entirely different than the goals of somebody that says, I want to transform the entire agricultural system of the nation. That's Mark's goal. My goal, I want to help 100 farms become permaculture farms. That's it. If I get that done... The day you guys push me out to sea in a reed boat and shoot flaming arrows at me and drink a keg in my honor, I'll be looking down with some celestial mead smiling at you and knowing I did well. Okay? So different goals, different tools to the different ends. And if you're going to be in the business world today at the higher level business world, at the concept of creating 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 acres of permaculture, you're going to have to use debt. You want to create 10 or 100 of your own, you can do it without debt, and you probably should. It all depends. One more before I move on on this one. I used to work for a company with a partner called Syrian. 
Syrian does network optimization services for wireless carriers like AT&T. At the time, Syrian was doing about $4.5 million a year in business. This is not a company that was cash poor, but it had a lot of overhead, and it had a business cycle that it ran where the majority of its revenues came in about six months apart, and that left on both sides of that a six-month hole. So Syrian had a equity line of credit, a small business equity line of credit, The bank would loan us money in the holes to pay payroll with. The company made a good profit every year, but it still had gaps that had to be met with debt. Without the debt, the payroll couldn't be met, so the product couldn't be delivered, so the company couldn't have made its profit, which was quite substantial. So the customer wouldn't have got their service, the people wouldn't have had jobs, I wouldn't have had a job, and the company wouldn't have made money, and the customers of the company wouldn't have benefited from the services. You can't just say all that's bad. You have to qualify it with the instance and the application thereof. This is almost its own little show, but we got a whole Monday ahead of us, so let's get into some of your emails and, and feedback now. Um, this first story came to me from quite a few people, uh, a couple, again, asking me to pick lottery numbers for them or something like that. And, guys, I'm not able to do stuff like that. I just pay attention. So what I said was that there would be a government-backed, um, digital currency similar to Bitcoin by the end of the year. There's been a couple things that have come out that have sort of kind of looked like that. Uh, two that are mentioned in this article are the, the Czech crown coin, which is Czechoslovakia, and the Aurora coin, which is uh, for Iceland. But neither one of those are officially government-backed currency, saying this is now currency as far as we, the nation of X, are concerned. Nobody's done that yet, but someone has now said that they shall do so, and almost as if they wanted to do it just to uh, to fulfill a Jack Spirico prediction. They said it will be done by the end of the year. And want want to all of you that were sure it was going to be Switzerland or Iceland who didn't quite pull it off quite that way or something like that, it's Ecuador. Yes, Ecuador. Let me read it to you. Um, this is on Engadget. World's first government-backed digital currency to launch in December. It doesn't yet have a name, but Ecuador's new government-backed virtual currency is coming. That's the thrust of a new report from the Associated Press, anyway. The currency central bank is said to be gearing up for a launch sometime in December, though the juicy technical details and the mechanics of how citizens can get their metaphorical hands on, on these things are still shrouded in mystery. What does seem clear at this point is Equ that Ecuador's current cash in the form of U.S. dollar isn't going anywhere, that people will be able to conduct transactions with each other from their mobile phones without big fees eating into them. If everything goes according to plan, this would be the first time a national government has launched its own digital currency, though that's not to say that some cryptocurrency nuts haven't aimed to affect ch change on a national scale. Enthusiasts in the Czech Republic launched the Czech crown coin a few days ago in a bid to bolster the online business in the country. The Aurora coin folks made a virtual equivalent of $380 available to the fine folks in Iceland, only to see its value tank over time. That's a little bit misleading the way that that's put in there. The, the Aurora coin and $380 value and its value tank over time because how many people bought it for $380? Almost none. That's why it's worth about $15 bucks right now. Let's start out with something that's very important and is glossed over here. Okay, This is what I do for you. I, I pull out the things that no one really gets the significance of, and, and that's why I can tell you when things like this are going to happen. The, the, the first one is what does seem clear 
At this point, is that Ecuador's current cash in the form of the U.S. dollar isn't going anywhere, and that people will be able to conduct transactions with each other from their mobile phones without big fees eating into them. Okay, this is what you got to know, that Ecuador's system of money is, in fact, the U.S. dollar. Ecuador does not produce currency. There is no Ecuadorian dollar or peso. It doesn't exist. It doesn't... Oh, wait, it exists. Just like that. Like magic. See, it's a lot of work for a nation to produce a currency. And there's more nations than you would think that have just said, we'll use the dollar. You know? Everybody takes the dollar. We'll just use it. Let the Americans make the money. That's a, we'll, we'll multiply it in our economy and we'll control it and we'll tax it. And let them print the bucks. I don't need to print money. The problem with that is... One of the defining characteristics of a true sovereign nation is that it controls and produces its own currency. I want you to really think about that. I am going to be bringing you earth-shattering things connecting to each other today that no one will ever, they'll tell you about each one individually, they'll never put them together for you. I am going to radically change the way you see the future of the world today with this. So I want you to think about that. One of the defining characteristics of a nation is that it produces and controls its own currency and without that it does not in fact have true sovereignty it is impossible for a nation to have sovereignty if it doesn't control its own money and i know what you're thinking oh jack the way you're going to shatter the earth for us is you're going to say that since the federal reserve controls the currency of the united states the united states is not sovereign the sovereign entity within the united states is actually the federal reserve yeah everybody knows that that's that's not an earth shattering thing no no you got to think about that so what ecuador has just done is said we will be sovereign this new virtual currency thing works pretty good uh we don't need a mint You know, we can have basically one bank of computers with heavy crypto, uh, with heavy cryptology over it to protect it and make it safe. I mean, if it can be done by a bunch of uh, hacks that make Bitcoin up, we can do it here. So we'll set this up. We'll have our own currency. People can still use the dollar or they can use our currency. But we'll, we'll actually say this is like Ecuador coin or whatever we're going to call it in the end. And we'll actually say that this currency is backed by Ecuador. And the dollar is backed by the United States. And you can use both of them freely within our economy. Competing currencies, co-currencies, got it? Now, this one doesn't cost a lot in fees. This one can be easily transferred from one citizen to the other. This one's much better, but you use what you want. Oh, guess what? If you live in Panama or the United States or Mexico, we don't care. You can buy Ecuador coin, and you can buy it with dollars or pesos or pounds or euros. That's what they're going to do. And they're going to make a run with their currency as a sovereign currency of their nation and say, we don't really need the dollar, but if you guys want to exchange paper, go ahead. By the way, you can turn your Ecuador coins into dollars anytime that you want to. And when people say, well, you know, small countries like Ecuador typically have problems with inflation. Oh, no, no. It's going to be a virtual currency. Uh, uh, we'll just... Publish the rules just like Bitcoin so you know what to expect. So it'll actually be way more stable than the dollar because those jerks in America can't get their shit straight ever. They print money whenever they like. They print money with their bank system. Now, this is just going to be a way that you can have an accounting system between members of our economy, both internal and abroad. And Jack told you it would happen before the end of this year.
I seldom give deadlines unless I really know what's coming. Now, I want to talk about something else that's in here that's glossed over that nobody understands. The link to the Aurora coin and what why I think you'll see Iceland do this eventually too. Okay, officially. Let me read the linked article from Engadget over to TechCrunch about Iceland and, and get you the real issue here. Again, I'm going to change the way you see the future of the world. Economically, nationally, sovereignty today with this. Iceland has its own Sachi. A programmer called Bugar Fijir or blah, 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 has created an alternative to Bitcoin that he is calling Aurora Coin. And in 23 days, he will airdrop 31.8 coins to every citizen of Iceland, all 330,000 of them. In short, a pretty, pretty ballsy move. Aurora Coin will work just like Bitcoin. It's already surprisingly popular. We're $15 a coin in the launch. At launch, 21 million AUR will be made available to all Iceland citizens. They will use their private ID numbers to check in and receive their coins. Mining is performed through proof-of-work operations, just like Bitcoin. To be clear, there is no telling how popular Odinson's idea will be and who, and who or when the citizens of Iceland will start using their currency. In his manifesto, he blames the Icelandic government for bleeding the country. Quote, the people of Iceland are being sacrificed at the altar of a flawed financial system controlled by an elite that made astronomical bets supported by government on behalf of people and ultimately at the expense of people, he wrote. The power must be taken away from the politicians and given back to the people. Aurora coin is in short worthless at the onset. The goal, however, is to allow Icelandic citizens to once again trade outside the country. I spoke with Ordensen about his idea and he was very forthcoming. First question, why not just give everyone Bitcoin? I wish I could. Alas, it's all but impossible for Icelanders to buy Bitcoins for themselves, let alone for a giveaway. Since the banking collapse of 2008, Icelanders have been subject to strict capital controls, he said. This means people are not allowed to freely exchange the national currency, the krona, for foreign exchange, such as dollars or euros. So people can't buy Bitcoins unless someone is simple enough to, unless someone is simple enough to exchange Bitcoins for krona. Given, so in other words, let me just, We've got the rest of this article. I'll link to it. Okay. What they're basically saying is if, if, if you want to give me Icelandic currency for Bitcoin, I want to give you my Bitcoin, we can do that. But the Icelandic currency now is to me worthless. I can't exchange it to dollars because it's under a capital control, and I have to be an Icelandic citizen to hold Icelandic money. Got it? So this guy's created this virtual currency and says, okay, you guys use this in Iceland. And when, when you want to buy something from your neighbor, use this instead of, uh, of the krona. Okay? Kroner, krona, however you say their coin, right? Use this. If you guys will use it, it'll develop a value. Because it'll have viol value from one Icelander to another. If it gets a value on the virtual currency exchange, then you can exchange it for Bitcoin and other virtual currencies. And then you'll be able to conduct business outside the borders of your nation again because your nation has screwed you and agreed with European powers to say you can't do that. So here's your way out. This is important. If a nation doesn't control its own currency, it doesn't truly have sovereignty. Iceland right now has abdicated its sovereignty to the nations of Europe, and they did so by getting screwed. Millions and billions of dollars poured into Icelandic banks. 
that did business as though they were government-backed banks of Iceland, even though they were private banking institutions in the real estate bubble and build up to the 2008 banking crash across the United or the, the whole con the whole world. Okay, this is another thing. you got to know the history to understand the context. So. The Bank of Iceland was always seen as like a great place to put your money. So a lot of money went there from the pension funds from especially Ireland and the UK. Okay? Money went in. Again, many of these banks misrepresented themselves and they were just private banks in Iceland, not banks, by, banks backed by Iceland. When everything popped and Uncle Ben doled out trillions of dollars around the world, including to these banks... They took the money, and then no one would tell us what banks got it. And the, we don't. We know this because of Senator Bernie Sanders, who grilled Bernanke, who admitted that yes, we we just gave out all the money, but we can't tell you where it went. Okay, there's a video of that. I'll put that in the show notes today if you want to see that. So these banks got the money from the giant U.S. sugar daddy bailout. They filled the holes. So in the end, it was like nothing ever happened to them, but yet they had no money to give back to the pension funds and the bad loans that they sold to the pension funds. And then the European Union and the UK came calling to Iceland and said, you guys owe us this money because we promised it to our citizens in their retirement, and you owe us now. And they put sanctions against Iceland, and Iceland is now in hawk to Europe. Most, most of you listening do not even know this happened. So Iceland makes the deal with the devil, Merkel, and then says, yes, yes, this is a big part of it, <laughs> and then says to its citizens, we have to do this now, we're screwed. And you can use your money here, but you cannot exchange our money for dollars or euros or yen, etc. We are off the forex, we have rigorous capital controls, Icelandic money stays in Iceland to do Icelandic things and Icelandic things only. We as the government decide what money can be exchanged with other governments. That is all. Go back about your lives, Icelanders. And this guy says, no, we're not going to be doing that. Now, will his citizens wake up and start? He gave them the currency. Here it is. All you have to do is log in and claim it. Everybody gets some. It has no value. Well, start exchanging it. See, Again, people don't understand where does a currency derive its value. It's only real money if it's gold. Quit being stupid. That's not true. Gold to you is worthless unless somebody else will exchange something for it. If I put you on an island all by yourself and there was no food or water on that island and you had two choices, a 50-pound bar of gold or five pallets of food, water, and comfort items, Which one would you take? Now, the 50-pound bar of gold would buy a lot more than that pallet in our economy today. What one would you... Just stop being dumb and say, but gold is historically... Just stop being dumb for a second and answer the question. You're on the island. I'm not coming back for 60 days. There's no fresh water. There's one palm tree in the center with no food on it. That's all the shade you get. You're sitting on a rock in the middle of the Pacific freaking ocean. You can either have five pallets of food and comfort items or a 50-pound bar of gold. You're going to take the food, items, and comfort items. Why? Because money derives its value from the value of the goods and services exchanged in the economy. Money is nothing but accounting. 
When Joe grows potatoes and sells them to Frank, and Frank gives him dollars or yen or euro coin or whatever for them, it is the potatoes that created the value, not the money. All right? So what he's saying, the guy that created this Aurora coin, is you can give this value by exchanging it with each other. If you exchange it with other and others and impart value to it, it will become exchangeable outside of your economy, and I will give you back the liberty that's been taken from you. But you have to do it. It's up to you. Here's a method. These two things are going to become monumental to you when I give you the next piece of feedback from a listener. And you probably won't see it until I connect the dots for you. Okay, here we go. We're going to make what's going to look like a right turn. We're going to go into a world that could be one of the most liberty-creating things in the world, but will probably be one of the most Orwellian, oppressive things ever created in the world, at least in its current form where it's at, or specifically if our nation grabs onto it and uses it. But <clears throat> then I'm going to tie it back to what we've been talking about with virtual currencies up till now. And then during this, I want you to remember the following phrase. A nation has no true sovereignty unless it controls its own currency. Just remember that. This is on DefenseOne.com. Who defends the virtual countries of tomorrow? Does a virtual country still need a real military protection? And if so, who provides it? Short answer, yes, and the United States. President Barack Obama made a visit to Estonia on Wednesday where he praised the country's government in, in subtle terms as a core NATO ally. As, and this is a quote by Obama. As a high-tech leader, Estonia is, Estonia is also playing a leading role in protecting NATO from cyber threats, he said. Estonia is an example of how every NATO member needs to do its fair share for our collective defense. What does this have to do with anything? Wait, folks. Estonia serves as a host of the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence. In many ways, it's NATO's cyber tip of the spear in Europe. It is also the world leader in e-governance. Look for that word to get used a lot more in the coming months, and especially the coming years. Citizens have unprecedented access to health, education, and government services online, and can even, even exercise their right to vote digitally. But it's also becoming a country within a country. In May, the government of Estonia announced the launch of a digital country initiative. Beginning next year, the country will allow anyone who can pass a quick background and identity check at an Estonian embassy to become a digital citizen of Estonia and get an ID card. Estonia's future e-citizens can open bank accounts, start online businesses headquartered there, pay taxes online, or reinvest in the country tax-free. It could be a model revenue-generating scheme for countries all around the world. More importantly, it could, it could significantly increase Estonia's geopolitical clout. There is, I, when I first read this, I almost thought, is this defense one site like one of these spoof sites or something like that? Because then it mentions Obama making a joke that said that, you know, maybe we should have got Estonia to take care of the healthcare website or something like that. No, this is real. I've looked it up. I've done a bunch of research on it. And, um, there's a whole YouTube channel that the government of Estonia has out on this. And, um, there's some real, Orwellian stuff in it too and they're kind of proud of it they're not even hiding it like they have one video you can watch on their channel and I'll put the channel in the show notes too where you see a police officer checking a license plate 
and that tells him who's, whose car it is, which, you know, they can do that here, but generally they're not supposed to just run your plate. They're supposed to have a reason. So there's no, there's no, they don't, they run plates here all the time. They have cameras running plates now, but, um, in Estonia, they're like, yeah, we could totally run your plate. So they run your plate and it tells them whether your insurance is paid, um, whether your license is current, whether your registration is current on the vehicle. And then they know whether or not they should stop you. That can go down some really dark places. But if you're an Estonian citizen with an Estonian passport, then you can bank or travel in the world and not do it as an American or your country of origin. But this doesn't do that quite yet. As I dug deeper into this, what I found is that the government of Estonia puts it this way. The card is required by our citizens to do things, but it's not, there's no punishment for not having it. You have to have it, but you don't have to have it. It's a national ID card. Think about that, okay? So what they're saying is, like, all the stuff that you want to do in, in society is really easy with this thing, and you can do it, but if you don't get one, we don't care, because you can't do anything without it. <laughs> They have a virtual one now. It's like an app for your phone. Your identity is your phone. There's certainly some concerns about theft. They seem to be at least saying they can address that yet. You have the United States government praising something that's a direct threat to their ability to control people. Well, you start thinking about that. Like I said, I'm going to change the way you view the future, the economic and political future of the world today. I want you to think about the Internet. I'm going to take you back for a second. When the government helped fund the creation of the Internet and the rollout of the, the Internet as we know it today, Not ArcNet, not not the stuff that me and my buddies used to play around in the 80s with dialing in individual modem to modem communication. The Internet of today. The Internet that enables things like eBay and Amazon. That Internet. The Internet that started with... <laughs> You've got mail, right? That Internet. The government believed when they created the Internet they had created the greatest tool in the world for the control of society. They really did. They thought, this will be great. Everybody will use it. We'll run email. We'll control email. And like 50 email providers showed up overnight. And it was, it was a system that was so easy to use that it became as much a threat to government control as a means of government control. And you now have this Wild West environment where... The guy that says he's against the government might be for the government. The guy that says he's for the government might be against the government. And the government organization that says they're a government organization may not be. And everybody's spying on each other. And But in the end, the citizens use the Internet as a tool more than the government does. And they can't really control that. So I want you to think about that as we go forward here. So now we have this card, and if I get one, the government of Estonia says, yeah, you can have an Estonian bank account, you can run a business in Estonia. And the United States says, well, there's all these reporting requirements that you have to do for American citizens to do business in Estonia. And Estonia says, I'm sorry, they're not doing business as an, as an American citizen. They may be an American citizen, but they're a virtual citizen of Estonia. So they're not doing business as Jack Spierko American, they're doing Business is Jack Spierko, Estonian virtual citizen. Now, unlike a, a true Estonian citizen, my card 
according to the Estonian government, where I've looked this up, is a privilege, not a right. It can be revoked. They actually say that if I have a bank account in Estonia and they think I'm doing something wrong with it, they'll take away my card. They also say they won't seize my money. They'll say I'll have to come there and, and claim my money personally and explain what's going on. I don't trust government from any nation, even Estonia, but that's what they're saying anyway. I mean, that's how this thing works. But you don't think about this for the United States. For the United States, this means a giant gaping hole in their ability to exhort the capital controls that you see going on in Iceland on the American citizen. Well, you have to report. No, we don't. That's not. They're not. See, you got to understand that the governments do business on technicalities. Please understand that, right? So what the United States should say to Estonia is you have to disclose the information, and we just passed this new law that was covered in the Survival Podcast recently, in case you listened to it, that says you have to disclose this information about American citizens banking abroad in your nation. And they say, we don't have any. And the government says, but this guy's an American. But no, he's not. He's a virtual citizen of Estonia. He's effectively doing business as though he has a, a, an Estonian passport. In our country. It may not be a passport where he can travel to France and say he's a citizen of Estonia, unless they choose to recognize it, up to France. But for purposes within our economy, this grants him the same privileges that our actual citizens have, and he's doing business as one of those. Does that mean that the government can't say to you that you have to tell them? Of course they can, but dis disclosure and acts of disclosure are different things. And how do you control this? And how do you control this when multiple countries do it? So why would the U.S. government praise this? Coming soon, a national ID card to United States citizens that will give you all the benefits of, being, of having one of these Estonian things. USA number one. You don't want this Estonian card. You want our card. And it will be brought to you by a Republican president of the United States who will be able to sell it to the people of this country the way no Democrat ever could. And the Rush Limbaugh's of the world and the Sean Hannity's of the world will suddenly find in their hearts the reason this makes sense. They'll feign resistance in the beginning, but over time they'll be won over, and they'll say how this will help protect us from terrorists, like ISIS. Let me just say this about ISIS. I'm not going to go in today because I don't want a tangent today. I'm going to tell you this, though, and I want you to get it through your thick American skulls that are completely laced with Twinkies and Ho-Hos and Ding-Dongs and bacon fat. I want you to get it through that thick American skull. If ISIS wants to come to America, they will get a passport, climb on a 777, and fly to the United States. They will not come across the Rio Grande in Mexico. That is the dumbest thing your media has told you this year and convinced you is a real threat. Well, I saw some guy dressed like an ISIS guy carry a fake head across the river as a publicity stunt. Okay, let me explain this to you again so you get it in your thick skull. It is easier when you're in Europe to get a passport to come to America than it is to get clearance to go to Mexico. It's easier to just come here. Not to mention, since they supposedly have Billions and billions of dollars that we cannot find. They would find a dollar if you owed it to them. But they can't find these billions of dollars that these ISIS-ass clowns supposedly have. Then one would only need a great big boat and a couple small boats 
And one could just pull up to various ports across the United States where people pull fishing boats in every day from offshore and just step onto the country. They're not coming here from Mexico, guys. Come on. Please understand, you're being, you're being played against each other. If ISIS comes to America, they'll do so with a passport on a 777. Probably flying right in out of Heathrow, London Airport after a connection from somewhere else in Europe. But let's let the ISIS thing go, because that's not what I'm here to talk to you about today, other than what I just told you, which is what the TV will never tell you and nobody will ever believe, because it's, well, the truth. This thing Estonia is doing is going to be adopted by other governments, other governments who will also create virtual currencies. Why would you create virtual citizenry, virtual government? And that's actually what they call it, e-government and virtual government in Estonia. And they've, they've made it very easy for citizens to do things like pay their taxes. Uh, and, and streamlined it. And I'm not saying taxes are good or anything, but I'm saying, you know what, if I could streamline my tax paying to a point where instead of having to go through 5,000 hours of bullshit every year to pay what I should pay. Because that's what, it, when you run a business, it's not 5,000 hours, but it's a lot of time that are spent with accounting and bookkeeping and figuring out how to expense this and how to expense that. If you come up with a tax system that just effectively puts a person where they end up anyway and streamline it and save them all that time, Financially, I'm ahead because I could spend that time either with recreation or doing my main business. So if you're going to create this, I mean, citizens of Estonia vote electronically. Why wouldn't you create electronic currency? Why wouldn't you just completely create a cashless nation? And then why wouldn't you say, if you are doing business in Estonia as a virtual citizen of Estonia, of course you can use our money, put it in our bank, or put it in anybody else's bank you want to. Now... In Estonia, you have this staunch NATO ally. And that means that we're in league with the United States and with the European Union and all the things that go with that, the Central Bank of the United States called the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of Europe, the global oligarchy. So it's natural that a nation like the United States would praise what Estonia is doing. The thing is, when you're doing something like that, It's replicatable. So what's to stop Ecuador from saying, maybe you'd like to be a virtual citizen of Ecuador. You could use Ecuador coin, you could bank in Ecuador, and we could tell the United States, go after yourself. We're not doing it because they're not American citizens, they're virtual Ecuadorian citizens. What happens if a dozen, or two dozen, or three dozen nations that are specifically against the U.S. European hegemon decide to do this two dozen different ways, with two dozen different options. Almost like the United States is supposed to work where I can choose where I want to do business, where I want to live, where I want to hold my property within the 50 member states, and the states have to compete with each other for my business, except that's largely been neutered by the overreaching arm of the federal government attempting to make everything equal amongst the states through federal taxation and federal enforcement and federal mandate. I mean, you do understand how federal mandates ruin the union, right? The, 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 the republic? See, Florida should be able to decide what Florida does, and then Florida either attracts or repels citizenry based on what they do or don't do. 
and how they do it. When the federal government mandates that all states shall do X, we've taken one more step to leveling the 50 states to where that bastion of innovation and re, you know innovation and, and invention has been made more and more neutered where everybody's the same. A guy in Georgia lives pretty much the same life as a guy in California. We're not there yet, but trust us, that is the goal. But if all these nations start doing this, then how do you control that? Do you tell yourself you can't become a virtual citizen of Ecuador? Well, I've already done that. Well, you can't do it, but I've already done that. Ecuador says I am. And what happens when a nation says, I, I, you know what, we, we have a lot of land and we don't have that many people. Virtual citizens come home. You say you can't leave? How much can they get away with? How much control can they exert? But here's where I'm going to give you the earth-shattering reality of everything. It should be starting to come to you now. You have a technology that will be used by the next president to successfully implement a United States national ID card, and he will be a Republican. There's another Put it down in stone, Jack Spearco prediction. I'm going to say my likelihood of being correct with that one is 95%. I'm not going to say it's 100% like I said this virtual currency thing is, but I'm saying 95%. It will be sold to the American people. It will be part of immigration reform. Immigration reform will be brought to you by a Republican administration, probably a Republican-led Congress and Senate. And it will be under the auspices of security. And they will finally, quote-unquote, seal the border. That will be more to keep you in than to keep them out, though. The same people who have fought this for years will bring it to you in the Estonian model. Now, you won't be able to become a virtual U.S. citizen, but you'll be a U.S. citizen with a national ID card that you're not required to have, but it will make your life easier if you do. And most people will get their little card. Some will say, I'm never doing it, until they can't do anything anymore. But what happened in Iceland? What happened in Iceland? This guy just said, hey, this Bitcoin thing works pretty good. Why don't I just create my own Icelandic Bitcoin, call it Aurora Coin, and just give everybody some? All you got to do is log in and claim it, and then you use it to exchange with each other. Do you see where this logically progresses to? So... Right now, a nation, be it Ecuador or Costa Rica or Panama or, I don't know, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Switzerland, uh, Germany, Russia, Iraq, Kazakhstan, India, any nation could do these two things relatively easily. On a budgetary standpoint, it's a small, small amount of money. In fact, one could start then selling your currency, and your citizenship to outsiders who wanted to partake in things, and actually it would be profitable. If you start thinking anarchist, though, start thinking a little bit anarchist. Not the TV version, the live version of anarchy. Anarchy is actually where individuals voluntarily associate and choose their own leadership and are not bound by the choices of others for their leadership. So I, you, you guys do your things your way, we do our things our way. We can work with each other, but in the end, when it comes down to it, our rules are our rules, your rules are your rules, and we voluntarily agree. I do not have to be part of your system. That's what real anarchy is. So what happens if somebody says, I'm going to create the nation of 
Libratopia. Just going to call it, I'm going to say I'm a nation. Libratopia. And as a nation, I need certain things. One is I need a currency. Libratopia coin. Done. I need the power to tax, but as a libertarian, anarchist-style nation, I need my taxation to be voluntary. Huh. Well, what if I say that just to become a citizen, there's a tax, but it's voluntary because I'm never going to make anyone be a citizen. Ever. So you can just spend a hundred bucks and become a citizen of Libertopia. And when your children are born, they are not citizens by birth. Because that would be against their will. When they reach an age of decision, they are free to purchase their citizenship in this nation as part of a voluntary tax if they wish to become one, yet they do not have to. So now I have the ability to control, manipulate, produce, and issue my own currency and the power to tax. And I've done nothing with any technology that doesn't currently exist. And what if I start passing legislation not to control but to protect my citizenry? No nation shall interfere in the commerce between two citizens of Libertopia. It shall not be done. You can tell them what to do when they're working with your citizenry. And they can have, and I, and I issue a proclamation that any citizen of Libertopia may also be a citizen of any other nation. And only the, the protections and the laws of Libertopia apply to the individual when conducting business within the virtual nation of Libertopia. Whenever you're conducting business with an outside nation, you're subject to whatever laws they, they pass But when you're in your nation of Libertopia, you do what you want. And we don't tell them what you're doing. Our Constitution requires us not to. What if there were 20 of these, 30 of these, competing for your business, a free market government? It'll start with states, true states, small ones, like Estonia and Ecuador. Some will side with the hegemond. Some will revolt against the hegemond. But this is what Bitcoin is already. Without, without the shape to it. Without the defined borders. In other words, if you were going to do this, you'd say, well, this whole thing about people knowing who sent what Bitcoin to who, we're just going to do away with that. You, you, you know, it's between the two parties and nobody else. And our Constitution forbids us from telling anybody else. Well, give us the information. We can't. It's the Constitution. We have a contract with these people that says we can't do it. Well, we're going to make you. I, I don't know how it works. Somebody does. Well, we know how it works, but we don't know how to get the inf We actually built the system so the information won't come out. We don't know how it works. We shut it off. It can't be shut off. It doesn't exist in one place. It exists in multiple places, and we don't even know all the places it exists in. We'll unplug it. It can't unplug it. It's not a thing. It's a, it's a network. It's a virtual nation. It's just there. You can't shut it off. We'll seize your assets. We have assets in 150 countries. Some might let you and some won't. And some of our assets, we don't even know where they are because they're part of this. And they're not really our assets. They're our citizens' assets. Tell us all your citizens. 
We, we don't have a list of all our citizens. It doesn't work that way. Well, they purchased their citizenship. Well, when they purchased their citizenship, they got a number. We know the number, but we don't know the citizen's actual name. The citizens know each other, but you can't, we can't just give you everybody's information. We don't have it. We do, but we don't. You see how it works. Well, we want to audit it. Go ahead. It's public, but it doesn't give you the information you're looking for. The people that built it, built it so they couldn't get the information out of it, so we can't do that for you. I'm sorry it doesn't work that way. Well, we know that you're behind this development here. Yes, we are. Well, those people are minding their own business, doing their own thing, and doing business in your, your economy with your money your way. And you can't do anything to them because your constitution prohibits you from that. We'll violate that and screw them. Go ahead. You've just declared war with the nation of Liptopia. Maybe we'll go Galt. Well, what does that mean? Maybe we'll just have all our citizens go all Libertopia, and we won't participate until you guys quit jacking with us. Could it be that simple? Probably not. But could it work? Yes. You see... This is what happens when governments attempt to leverage technology to the means and the end of the government. Technology is replicatable. Technology is portable. Technology is designed to evolve. And in a world where technology can be cut and pasted from one server to another and then modified forward, One cannot possibly have a monopoly on any technology. The age of patents and protection are coming to an end when it comes to this type of thing because there's going to be no way to even know what the base of the code was because you're not going to be able to access it. If you do look at it, it's going to be gibberish. There will be a virtual nation within two years that will call itself that. There's already one being built. There's already one being built. It's called permacredits, and, and Xavier Hawk is trying to build it. Will it succeed? I don't know. But that's basically what permacredits is. It's a virtual nation. He's not calling it that. You're probably going to do it now, aren't you, Xavier? But I'm just saying. Because... The way permacredits was designed to work is that when they have an initiative and they have some money and they want to say we want to back something and there's two different things that can be backed, well, all the members can vote. And that is all publicly audible in a blockchain type of technology so you know which place gets the funding based on what the community wants. Why can't that be a nation? Why can't that be a nation? Why can't we create virtual countries? We have the ability for elections to exist, for people to choose to be part or not be part of them. We have the ability to have our own methods of accountant, uh, accounting, which we call money. We have the ability to exist in a voluntary tax economy where people choose whether or not to fund Initiatives of the overall government, if you want to call it that. A governmentless government. A self-chosen, network-based autonomy. 
That's the future. And they will fight it, and they can't do anything. It's like the Internet. Well, we'll use it to tell them what to believe. Uh, yeah, um, something about that. Dude, they're already using it to tell each other what's really going on. Uh, we'll, we'll, do, we'll get in there, and we'll uh, infiltrate it, and we'll uh, control it. Yeah, they're, they're already building ways around that. No, well, we'll tell them what to believe like we're them. Yeah, they already know we're doing that, and there's already so many sources of information that the truth is out there somewhere. Well, then we'll, we'll, we'll add to it, and we'll make it confusing. Yeah, we can do that, but the people that really want the information are able to exchange it with each other, and now we're screwed. Okay, we got to go on to something else. We'll keep using this to our ends, but we've admitted that we can't control it. That's where we are with the Internet today. Virtual nations coming soon to a planet near you. Don't ask me to set one up. I'm not doing it. I have no interest in that. If somebody sets the right one up, I might be a citizen of it. And I would say my criteria for being a citizen of a virtual nation is being a citizen of that nation must not prohibit me from being a citizen of any other nation. And not just as a loophole because, you know, I can't function without being a U.S. citizen. But if I want to be a member of two virtual nations, I should be able to do that. And I must be able to leave. And anything that you take from me must be given by me voluntarily. I'd like a government like that. I kind of would. And what would such a government do? Well, it might put the needs of its citizenry before the needs of itself because it itself is its people. Without borders to defend, it wouldn't need a military. Cybersecurity could be enacted by four or five talented people. Um, it might educate its citizens through a voluntary educational system where citizens can choose what to learn from whom, and it might simply augment that learning. It might say that, you know, Canada's got a pretty good course on how to make maple syrup. I'm not really making a joke there. I'm just saying, you know. The people in Maine, they've got a pretty good course on how to build lobster traps. And the Floridians are really good at growing uh, oranges. And they're Canadians and Americans. So you can learn from them on these things. But here's some things you didn't know. And here's how to use your citizenship of our nation to your advantage. And what happens if just one of these virtual nations gains the acceptance of a land-based nation. Not all citizens of Libertopia are now citizens of Costa Rica, but Costa Rica acknowledges diplomatic relations with Libertopia. Just that. What happens then? How does the rest of the world then say that this is not effectively a nation? Do not men and women have the right to create and form nations for their own interest and for the interest of their posterity. Is not our entire nation founded on that premise? Are not those the paraphrased words of our foundational documents? That we indeed have inalienable rights to freely associate with others of our choosing and to cast off tyranny at a time of our choosing by a method of our choosing. And is there any other way that a revolution could occur without the shedding of blood on a global level than this? I say no. Do I think that this will be a highly successful thing in two years? I do not. I do not. I think this is a multi-generational pathway to an organized form of global anarchy. And whether it succeeds or not will be up to the people. 
what I think you'll find is that the most talented and successful people will naturally gather together and do the most talented and successful things over time. And whether you like the free market or not, there is no destruction of the free market in the end. In the end, the market always tells you the truth. The producers are always where the market is the freest. And the producers always produce the most valuable things in the places where their production is the most valued. So if I could move into a virtual nation, why wouldn't I? There's this little problem, isn't there, of physical residence? Like, so you might say, Jack, that you're now a citizen of Libertopia, but the state of Texas says you're a citizen of Texas. Tarrant County, Texas says you're a citizen of Tarrant County. That's what your driver's license says that allows you to move around your, your state and your nation. And your new national ID card, not mandated, but required. And if you, if you, if you look up the information on the Estonian, um, Virtual Citizen YouTube channel. That's, that's pretty much the exact words. It's required, it, it's, it's not mandated, but it's required. There's no penalty, but yet if you don't have it, you can't do all this stuff. Right? So it's necessary, but not required. But it's required, but not mandated. Alright. So, won't that prohibit you from all of the benefits of being a citizen of Libertopia because You are a citizen of the United States, and you're subject to the laws of the United States. Well, my constitution, as a citizen of Libertopia, says I am only subject, I am only subject to the laws of my nation, the United States, and the states and member states thereof, when I am conducting business with other members of that nation as such. And if all my real, tangible transferable assets exist in the virtual space of Libertopia and I don't even know how to get them, I only know how to, to spend them within Libertopiaville and the government can't get them, what are they going to do? Waterboard me for the passcode that I don't remember? And if it's one person, sure. But not if it's 10 million or 20 million who are citizens of 10 or 20 versions of this, some of them multiples. So we're at a point now where you're going to see a bifurcation between liberty and tyranny that's unprecedented in the global world. And the interesting thing is I think more people will choose totalitarianism than will choose freedom. More people will choose the path of the state than the path of virtual freedom. They absolutely will. Uh, they will defend the state as necessary. It will be a writhing, dying beast, and that is when the beast is the most dangerous and most likely to kill and maim and cause bloodshed and grief. The thing is, I don't think it can be stopped. Again, what are you going to do? I mean, if somebody built this the right way, they could literally build it that way. Our elections are auditable. When our citizens vote, we make sure every citizen votes once, we collect all the votes, and the votes are auditable by anybody, And you, but you can't see who voted, just that the votes occurred. The money of all of our citizenry is freely exchangeable between them, but we don't know who has what, and we don't want to know. And when even when somebody pays us a tax, we don't know who paid it. And we don't care because it's voluntary anyway. 
the only mandatory tax, if you could say that, is to join. I'd even say we'll give it back to you if you choose to leave. <laughs> Why not? You're not benefiting from the from the the virtual country anymore. So you don't get all your but your your, your hundred bucks you pay to become a member or five hundred bucks or whatever it is. Here's your money back. You can leave. We don't even know who you are. We don't care. Just take your money and go. But you no longer have access. Tell us who they are. We don't know. Give us a list of names. We don't have one. Give us a list of the assets of your people. We don't even know who they are. How would we know what their assets are? We want reporting on their financial activities. We don't understand that. We don't know. We don't need to know. It's not our place to know. We don't even know who we are. You're talking to a machine. HAL 9001. We don't know. Welcome to Information for Libertopia. If you would like information on our citizenry, we don't know. Thank you. Why not? Again, could it be that simple? Probably not. Is there something there? Yeah. And there will be a million versions of it tried, and a dozen to become somewhat successful, and it will be done by nation-states, city-states, and individuals. And we'll see who really has the most power in the end. I believe it's the people. But I want to warn you, this is not a prophecy of wonderful things to come. I want to, I want to remind you what I'm saying is going to happen in the near future. Your nation is going to come out with a national ID card. It will be part of controlling people. It will be sold to you by the right wing who claims to oppose it. The average person will accept it out of dreaded fear of ISIS and some British guy that cut a guy's head off in the desert and people coming across a river in the southern border who are not coming across a river in the southern border because, frankly, it's a lot more comfortable to sit in a business class seat and fly in on a 777. Your president will be made to look more and more foolish over the next two years by his own choosing. Your factions within this nation will become greater in divide than any time in history. There will probably be bloodshed and riots in the streets like you've never seen before in the next few years. There will be attacks on our own soil by people that they will say want to kill us that live in caves or in deserts somewhere else. They will probably actually be by people who are already here and have been here for a very, very long time. Every single thing that everybody does that is an act of violence anywhere will be labeled as a terroristic act. And your nation will look like it is completely in a shambles and ready to fail by election year or election season 2016. And when the entire citizenry looks around and feels like no one has any competence, they will choose those who they see as competent, tough and strong and willing to do what's necessary to protect the people of this country and rebuild it. And they will sign the deal with the devil. And all of these wonderful technologies that can be used for the purposes of liberty will also be used for the purposes of tyranny. And the average person next to you will be so stupid as to cling to tyranny, defend tyranny. And if you look at it this way, people defend that which sustains them. There's already more than 50% of the people in this country who are sustained by the government itself. More than 50%. So a simple majority exists that will defend the system solely because they are dependent upon it. There are very few people who are receiving a retirement check from the government or a paycheck from the government or a support check from the government that will actually 
support reducing the government. Now, when they find out that people that are productive are deciding, I've had enough of this shit, and I think I'll go do it on my own, and are being successful at it, they'll say, you must stop them. Not, oh, can we go do that too? No, no, no. No, they must be stopped. They're stealing our money. Because, see, it's their, to them, it's their money. The government sees your money as their money, and the people receiving the government's money see it as their money. The only people's money they don't see it is as your money, people that actually earned it. They're the only people not entitled to the money in the mind of the bureaucrat and the person sucking the tit of government. We, who's going to build the roads? Okay, fine, you can do that. What about schools? We have a hundred different choices now. They're all virtual. We don't need them. Well, who's going to do this? Who's going who's to measure the length of women's bathing suits to make sure they're not showing too much leg? You know, there's an old picture of that. Somebody sent it to me recently. But sooner or later, people do start to say, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. That's where we're headed. A split. A split like you've never seen before. Two of them. One... A split amongst the statists. Those who see government as the answer to all of our problems are being more divided today amongst themselves than any time in history. Just look at Facebook. If you, those of you that say Facebook is pointless, you're wrong. Facebook is a direct look into the psychology of America today. If you look past your close circle of friends that think like you, you'll see the divide. You'll see the arguments and the comment changes and things like that. And you'll think, well, that doesn't really matter. But it does because it does affect you on the large scale because these are the people surrounding you. These are the people that are going to go freaking ape shit when things don't go their way. These are the people that are going to riot and rebel. And you you might want to be in touch with the divine that exists between them. And all of this stuff showing you poor little children in a blanket and then showing you gang members are just so whichever side of that argument you're already on, you'll go further to that side. Okay, The only way out is to take neither side of that argument. And to go, that argument is nonsense. Neither one of these is representative of the actual truth. There's a guy coming across the river with a head, and he's dressed like ISIS. What the hell does dressed like ISIS mean anyway? Right? That's not the problem. That's stupid. There, there's a little child in a blanket that's going to be deported to, uh, to, to, to Timbuktu, and they're going to put him in a boat uh, with, with, with dragons and lions that are going to eat him for lunch. Stupid. Okay? You can't be on either side of that. You can't. Because both of them are losing arguments. Now, ask yourself, why would the people in charge give you, give both sides a losing argument? Because they don't want either one of you to win. They just want you divided. And the pendulum swings left and right and left and right with pauses in the center. And there's your political system of government, your two-party system. The Democrats are in control, both parties are in control, the Republicans are in control, both parties have control, one and the other, and both, and the both and the other, and one, and both the other, and one, and back and forth, and you are so stupid. As a nation, you actually think it matters who's carrying the ball in a game where both, both teams are going to the same end zone.
It's a half-court basketball game by two teams wearing red and blue shirts. But when they make a basket, both sides of the scoreboard goes up. Actually, I'll tell you how it works. The scoreboard goes up on one side, government, and on the other side of the people, it stays at zero. And you're rooting, <laughs> you're rooting for the red shirt or the blue shirt while they shoot in the same basket at the expense of yourself. And most people will defend it. The average slave in America today will kill you if you try to take the chains off their back. They will die to defend their slavery. So the only option are things like this. I'm not going to say the only option is a virtual citizenry. But it's, it's, it's an option like that. It's opting out of these systems and saying we're just going to do our own thing. Let's take another call because I've eaten up way more than enough time for an entire show today. Or actually, I mean another, uh, another email. So here's another one. This came from Joe, and Joe says, You got it right, bud. 7,000 is a hell of a lot more than a couple at a test site in Illinois. It's going to hit us like a tidal wave, and I know they have to, but I don't think Mickey D's can even foresee the impact. Uh, this is an article on CNET. Let me read this article to you. And I'm actually going to tie this back into everything we've been talking about today. McDonald's hires 7,000 touchscreen cashiers. Would you like some microchips with that burger? A McDonald's European strikes another blow against human interaction by installing 7,000 touchscreen computers to take your order and your money. Welcome to McDonald's. My name is Hal 9000. May I take your order? McDonald's recently went on a hiring binge in the United States, adding 62,000 employees to its roster. The hiring picture doesn't look quite so rosy for Europe, where the fast food chain is drafting 7,000 touchscreen kiosks to handle cashier's duties. The move is designed to boost efficiency and make ordering more convenient for customers. In an interview with the Financial Times, McDonald's European President Stephen Easterbrook notes, the new system will open up a gold mine of data. McDonald's could potentially track every Big Mac, McNugget, and large shake you order. A calorie account tally at the end of the year could be a real shocker. The touchscreens will only accept debit or credit cards, adding to the slow death knell of cash and coins, virtual currency. This all goes along with an overall revamp of McDonald's restaurants worldwide aimed at projecting a modern image as opposed to old-fashioned golden arches with a slightly creepy, to my taste anyway, clown guy hanging around the french fries. This puts McDonald's one step closer to opening up the first Alphaville location. At least our new computer overlords will be nice enough to serve us filet fish Maybe they'll even throw in an iPad with a Happy Meal one of these days. Um, so 7,000, 7,000 virtual cashiers in Europe. And yet the United States, McDonald's franchisees hire 62,000 employees in one year. Why? God, do I have to tell you? <laughs> okay, if you if you already employ millions of people, and you have a whole bunch of people that due to a certain law will start requiring you to pay benefits that you cannot afford to pay, and you cut their hours, what is the only way that you can get your labor force back to the ability to do what it has to do until you bring the computers in? Yes, that is why. Because people that were getting too many hours had their hours cut, and now you need more... So it's not more... It's not 62,000 
people's man hours, right? So let's just do a little math. Let's say that those 62,000 people were working 40-hour work weeks. And so we'll multiply 62,000 by 40, and we'll get a whopping 2.48 million man hours. So if we were to take that and say that's what really happened here, we would say that McDonald's expanded its labor force by 2.4 million man hours. Now we know that's not true. Even if they hired people that averaged 20 hours a week and didn't cut anybody else's hours, it's still 1.24 million man hours of labor increase at McDonald's at a time when McDonald's sales are flat to down in the United States. This does not happen. It is a phantom. It is fictitious. It is not real. It is more bodies, and it is pretty much the same amount of man hours being worked. They're also getting ready to do this. Okay, They're getting ready to bring in this automation. It cannot happen overnight. The day you put the kiosk in a McDonald's, you might need one extra person that day, not one less. It takes time to train the customer base to where the customer becomes skilled enough to order their own Big Mac. You'd think it's easy, but for people that have never done it, it's not so easy. Think about when you're at a store like a Walmart store with a self-checkout kiosk, and there's some pretty long lines at the regular checkout counter, but there's a pretty long line at the four self-checkout counters. If you're an intelligent person, do you not, do you not, I do, do you not look at the people in the line and go, no, no, no way, no, and go, okay, the people in this line, are not mentally switched on enough to be able to do this well. And when you see the person staring at the screen like it's the first time they've ever seen it, and the line's kind of moving to your left with a professional cashier, don't you go over there and say, I'll just wait in line and let them do it today? And when you look at the line and you go, yep, that person knows that, you see four people actively doing their shit, and you see like three or four people in line that look like they all have a pulse, don't you get in that line and know I'll be out of here faster this way? Those are the people that have done it enough times, right? And those, the line with the people that are deer in the headlights as to why they're even in this line has, has gotten less and less common. And the average person in that line now comprehends what they're doing. And the dummies that can't work it, they get in the old line, right? So it's starting to take over. Okay. That's what McDonald's is going to have to do. That's what, it's not McDonald's. See, please stop thinking this is about McDonald's. That's, the, that's one of the main lies. This is about McDonald's, and they make billions of dollars a year selling hamburgers, and they won't pay their employees fair. That's what this is about. And then the other side says, the poor fast food workers, they're on strike, and they need... And then, and then, and then the, the people that actually have a business acumen say, look, this is not a charity. They're here to make a, a living, and these people are going to put themselves out of work. Right? It's all bullshit. This is coming. Okay, back to, remember when I talked about the strike and I went ballistic? I'm not going to go ballistic today, but I'm going to say this again. There is not now, nor has there been in the past recent history, a single fast food worker strike in this country, period. A strike is not a few dozen people made to look like a few hundred people chanting and holding up a paper piece of board that says, give me a, a union and $15. That is not a strike. A strike is when the workers of an establishment say, we're not coming to work until you give in to our demands. And then the, 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 the people that run the company say, no, we're not going to do that. And there's a stalemate, and then they don't come to work. And then customers don't get their stuff. <clears throat> this has not happened. 
during all these strikes, there was never a time that any single one of you went to a McDonald's or a Chick-fil-A or a Taco Bell and ordered some artery-clogging pile of crap and were unable to get it because workers didn't show up for work. None of these people that you've seen demonstrating, not to mention many of them don't even work in fast food places. They're, they're union employees employed by the union to protest. But even if we said they were fast food workers or they had a fast food job at one time or whatever, they, that's, not a, that's not a strike. It is a protest, but it's not a strike. A strike is when you don't go to work and your job doesn't get done. Hasn't happened. Right? But the story will be, in the end, it's the striking workers that put this on themselves so that the divide, just like I was saying in the earlier segment, can become larger and larger and larger because a citizenry divided is easily controlled. This is your future, America. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people that at least had a job without a job. A, a society where it becomes more difficult. Let, let's again, let's think about what is the purpose of a part-time job at McDonald's. Let's, let's be honest about the purpose of these jobs. One would be for a, a young person to get their first work experience and to determine if there's a career path toward management in the food industry for them or not. And to make some money to buy some stuff and get some experience so they can get a better job or move up in the company. That would be one purpose. The other purpose is the management roles in fast food. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's not a terrible place to make a living if you like it. I hate it. It would be terrible for me. But you know, a McDonald's manager makes a decent income. I'm not going to say they get rich, but they make a decent income. Okay, So it's either for that path, the management role, the temporary first job or second job to gain experience, or for the person who's come into a situation where they, they just need a job and they need something that they can find and they can get a job and they can make some money until they you know get back on their feet. Those are really the purposes of working at McDonald's. You're either in a path to management or you're in temporary employee. The, and, and most fast food places, they all have been run that way. That's always how the company has viewed the employee there. The guy on fries today will quit tomorrow. I need three guys qualified to do that job so that when one quits, I can call one of the other two in and one of the two that I call in will show up. Anybody that's ever managed one of these places knows this. So that was the actual legitimate purpose of that employment. So that'll go away, and there'll be all these young people, all these young people pissed off because that first job's not there now. I'll go down the gap and get a job. Yeah, they've got a kiosk there too. Not to mention they've got an app. I just order my jeans and they show up. I don't even need to go to the mall anymore. But I don't have any money because I don't have a job the mall that I don't have to go to, okay? But all these young people that can't get their start, millions of them, pissed. Well, got to have somebody for them to blame. Got to have somebody for them to blame. Now, when you got all these young people that are pissed off and think it's all the rich people that caused this problem, when you're 20 and clueless and going to college on your father's MasterCard, Aren't you convinced that guys just like your dad are the rich guys? So you're going to have this young generation, not just from fast food. Understand, this automation thing is going through the entire service sector. This is Fast food is just the logical starting point. 
Jobs in places like Walmart are going to decline in number. Right? They're going to. Grocery stores, you're going to walk in, throw your shit in the cart. The cart's going to add everything up. You're going to hit a button to pay. You're going to walk out the door, and a security scan's going to go zoomp, and make sure you didn't take anything you weren't supposed to. If no alarms go off, nobody's going to run out and hit you in the head with a baseball bat. You're going to get in your car, you're going to go home. So you're going to have this automation thing killing off the low-end jobs that the working poor and the, and the young people take. They're going to turn around and blame the rich people who are not the rich people. They're not going to blame the 1%. They're going to blame you and me, hard-working Americans that worked hard for what we had. So the other mafia family, the Republicans, I call them the Corleones, have to have someone on that end to blame so that you won't go over with them and say, hey, wait a minute, we didn't do this. They did this. So we have to be the, 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 the hard-working middle class that is the backbone of the political par party called the Republicans at the citizenry level in this country has to be made, has to be made entrenched in defending this act action as being not just inevitable, that's not good enough. It has to be defended as being caused by the very people bitching about it. They can't have the two sides coming to any kind of an understanding that, hey, this isn't necessarily bad. Here's our path forward with this. By the way, we're not the rich people, and you're not the poor people. We're just the citizens of this country. These ass clowns running the country are the problem. We need to take our country back. You can't have that. They must entrench the two sides. So you create, because you know this is coming, you create the illusion of striking workers. And even the people that say this is stupid, they acknowledge the legitimacy of a strike that does not exist, and the nation becomes further divided. You're going to have this type of divide, divides like Bundy Ranch and Ferguson, Missouri, all over this country in the next two years. All over the place. If you live in a major urban center, have an evacuation plan. And have a bug-in plan as well. A bug-in and a bug-out plan. Because many of you that live near urban centers, the place you live is not what's going to be it's threatened. It's going to be the place you work or the place you drive through to get to work or the place you drive through to get stuff. You're about to see martial law in America. You're just not going to see it from San Francisco to Tallahassee to Seattle to, to uh, Portland, Maine. It's going to be pockets. And it's coming. It's here. Ferguson, it's already here. It's already happening. And it's all, it's real and it's make-believe at the same time. It's real because real people are really going to get hurt. Real people are really going to die. Real people are really going to have their wealth stolen. Real people are really going to have their property damaged. Real people are really going to have their lives disrupted. But it's all play acting because they're pulling the strings to make it happen. And they already know what they're, when they say, we don't know what to do about this. They already know what they're doing. Just like this. Well, you know, if, if these people weren't demanding $15 an hour to do a minimum wage job, we wouldn't have to do all this automation. That's a, see, that's where it's bullshit. Cause they're gonna do the automation anyway. Why? Cause it makes sense. And again, what is your solution to this problem? I always give you my solution. What is your solution to this problem? A, a divided nation, people that are that have more than any person that's done as little 
has ever had in the history of the world. The poor people of this country today have more than people that were considered wealthy 300 years ago. Not people who are considered rich, but people who are considered yeah, they're doing pretty good. Just in modern conveniences alone. We have people today that are poverty-stricken, that have the latest iPhone, with access to all the information in the world on it, that have a car, that have a house, that have heat and cooling and running water in their home, that have never held a job in their life and have no intention of ever holding one. We have th those are the, and then we have people who are killing themselves in menial jobs that have less. You have a perfect recipe for internal civil war and internal civil fighting. But you have a totalitarian state that lets you fight just enough to get what they want out of you, but still control you. You have all the sides choosing one side or the other of those in control, not understanding they all play for the same team. Again, it's a basketball game. You're watching guys in red and blue shirts shoot baskets at the same goal, scoring against you and rooting for one side versus the other. When all their points go on the same side of the board, and they want the crowd to go on a good old-fashioned European soccer riot, and we're more than happy to do it. And then they come in there and stomp our throats and tell us it's in our own best interest for them to take more of our freedom and liberty away. We blame each other for the loss of liberty, but acknowledge that it needs to happen. So what's your solution to this, America? at least the Americans that are part of the TSP community, mine is opting out. Every way that I can. And I think this virtual country concept is just another way to do that. It's not the answer. It's an answer. I really wonder where that's going to go, though. I'm telling you. And it's going to probably be something like this. What are the billionaires out there It's not a complete scumbag. One of the billionaires, or really high-end millionaires, somebody that's working you know, $500, $600 million, that somehow done it without really selling out to the corporatocracy, or some rogue nation that's never really harmed anybody, but is a rogue, like a Switzerland, You know, it probably won't be Switzerland because they're so surrounded by, they get so much wealth from the oligarchy. Even though they're really not part of it, they, 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 they have such an ability to sell to it. They have no desire to really bring it down. But you have these nations out there that have really never harmed anybody. Nations like Ecuador or Costa Rica, you know, or Panama. They just go, ah. We could have so much of the world's commerce if we stopped seeing the commerce ending and beginning at our own borders and created a borderless nation. It'll either be a nation or an, a private consortium of wealthy individuals that'll probably start this. They'll have enough horsepower to really get it off the ground. It's been attempted before with seasteading and things like that. And, and, and you know, millionaires and billionaires from the dot-com boom that invest in these like seasteading ideas that we're going to create a platform and, and we're going to turn it into a nation. We're going to build a giant floating ship, basically, that's its own nation and people will pay. And, and for them to just understand, just use what made you the money in the first place. The people that really made billions online did it without any big overhead. 
They sold the tools to the miners. They didn't buy the mine. And they sold the tools for the, to the miners for long enough that eventually they could buy the mine. You understand that? So think about like the gold rush. So the gold rush happens and people all rush into a town. I'm all, everybody's going to strike it rich. And for everybody that strikes it rich, there's 10 that lose their shirt. And then for everybody that makes a living but doesn't strike it rich, there's a hundred that lose their shirt. You know, and two out of 120 either make a living or strike it rich and everybody else loses. But the town that grows up around the boom, the guy that sells the picks and the shovels and the hard hats and the lanterns and he also owns a bar where the miners drink and spend what money they do make and and spend it on ill repute things as well and there's a little room up over there that they can rent when they're when they're not going to sleep out next to their claim because they're tired and they can buy a bath that guy becomes worth a fortune cuz he mines the miner by providing the service the miner wants so a virtual nation especially one that was actually part of an actual nation that doesn't really want to bother anybody, that just wants to say, let's make our borders global, but retain our sovereignty. Let's create a voluntary participation. Or the the, 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 the millionaire or the dot-com billionaire that got there because they hit it just right. And they, they weren't part of the oligarchy. The oligarchy has quartered these guys. I mean, guys like I'm talking about are guys like uh, Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban is probably part of the oligarchy today. But he didn't get there by being part of the oligarchy. He's the kind of guy that could just go, you know what? I could throw 200 million at something like this. 100 million, 50 million. Probably 50 million on this is probably better than 50 million on HDNet, Mark. And we could just see what happens. Because of the currency derives its value from exchange of goods, what's in the economy. So a person with some horsepower could create an economy very, very quickly and actually own the store. Again, this could be used for good or evil. This thing, this virtual nation thing, is a gun. It can put food on the table or it can murder an innocent person. It can defend the innocent or it can oppress the innocent. It all depends on how it's used. But I think it's our future. I really do. With that, I'm going to wrap up today. And I hope I've shifted your mindset about our future as a nation. I hope I've shaken you to the core a little bit today. Because there's some bad stuff that's going to come out of this. And there may be some wonderful stuff that comes out of this. But look for the people that will bring you the worst of it to try to sell you on the best of it without giving it to you. Well, we could do this, but all we got to do is get rid of these people first. And I'll leave you with one solemn thought. I heard Glenn Beck one time say this. If the technology that existed today existed in 1930 and the Nazis had it, there wouldn't be a Jewish person left on earth. I think if this technology existed in 1930 and the German people had it, 
it wouldn't just be there wouldn't be a Jewish person left on earth. I think you'd be walking around in a place where everybody spoke German and had blonde hair and blue eyes. And we're at a point where they were probably killing each other over whatever was left of what they had destroyed. This is the most dangerous thinking that's ever occurred in the history of the world. The concept of making nations virtual and money virtual. And it's the most liberating at the same time. It's going to depend on who does it and how it's done. And I think the only way for it to work is for there to be lots of options. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know exactly what's going to happen as far as the, the good side, the potential side. I can tell you this. Some very dark days are coming to this nation right now. There is a movement toward total, complete control. And that will be done through the economy. Total, complete control of the economy. Okay, think about that. And they'll continue to lather stupid stuff up. You'll see things come out about putting a chip in your, your, your forehead or something like that so that all the religious people can freak out and say, we'll never do that, and they'll just give you a card that you'll take. You won't even need a card. They'll probably not give you a card. They'll create some kind of digital digital passport, digital national card or something like that. It'll be an iPhone app available from the U.S. State Department or something like that, and it'll become necessary for all economic activities. And then the Bible thumpers will say, it's the new world order and it's the end of the age and use it to send me money, and people will. In the past, the smart thing to do was get out, if you could. The Jew in Germany in 1930 that saw the writing on the wall and got out made the right choice. Whether they should have had to or not, for their own safety and the safety of those they loved that they were able to take with them, made the right choice. The businessman in Atlanta, Georgia, on the eve of the Civil War, that packed his business up and moved it to Connecticut, if he could, made the right choice. Doesn't matter whether he should have or shouldn't have, he made the right choice for his future. Saw the writing on the wall, knew the eventual outcome, knew that the city he was in would be burned, and that Hartford, Connecticut, whether it was a better place to live than Atlanta, Georgia or not at the time, if he could go there, would not, and therefore relocate, get out. And some will look back in history and say, why didn't that Jewish family leave Germany? Because it was their home. Why didn't that businessman live at, leave Atlanta, Georgia? It's where his business was. Most of those who knew better stayed behind and hoped for the worst and experienced the best in history. With government oppression and tyranny, didn't leave because, it, by and large, they couldn't or couldn't bear to. This is the first time in history where people may be able to leave without leaving. We'll take what you have. I have nothing. We'll find you. I don't exist. We'll take down your organization. We don't even know how it works, and we built it. Good luck.
It can be done. I'm not saying it will. I'm saying it can be done. And it's one way that we may win this fight, because otherwise we're not going to. The, 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 lie, the final lie that I'll talk about that's been sold to you is that you can win a war by using outdated tactics against an enemy using cutting-edge tactics. You know, you could be run out of Vietnam by uh, people who shoot primitive arrows at a helicopter. No. We ran out of Vietnam with our own tactics. Propaganda. Winning over the minds and the hearts of the people that were behind the nation doing the activity. I don't want to go deep down into that, but in the end, every time one side's beaten another, they've either used tactics that were more advanced or they've brought the battle to the enemy using their own tactics and technology. I'll tell you the insurgent that uses the IED is using a primitive technology against our advanced technology. They're actually using a very advanced tactic, strategy, and technology. A remote detonating weapon that detonates when I want it to and damages who I want it to damage without hurting me. But they're all suicide bombers, right? Eh. See? Another lie. So, if this is the technology of the future, and it is, and if this is the technology of those who would oppress you, and it is, then it is the technology that must be turned back against them. That's just how I see it. Hopefully this is a very thought-provoking episode. I'd love to hear from you guys about it. I'm going to finish today with a segment that we've been doing on Mondays, and I've changed it, and I decided to do it at the end today rather than the beginning. When I did that, I didn't realize how long the show would be. But we've been doing Conflicted Mondays uh, from the Conflicted Card Game. I decided to do it on my own for a while. Conflicted's a great game. I think you should play it, but here's the reality. We do this show from the standpoint of the real-world disasters that can hit you, so I'm going to make my own scenarios up from now on, and uh, they're going to be more likely to be things that would happen to you. They might be kind of tough, like today's. And I want to hear from you on the subject, uh, or the, the comments of today's show, which again is 1,421, what would you do based on a real, honest assessment of your situation? So in other words, you have to take the scenario seriously as though it happened, and you have to, like in today's, when I mentioned unemployment, find out how much that would be for you, because you probably don't even know, uh, and it would still be there in today's scenario. Here's today's scenario, how would you handle it, what would you do? And uh, next week I'll give you a new scenario and my thoughts on the last week's scenario. Today you walk into work and get called into HR. You are fired. There is no severance. There is only whatever your state pays in unemployment at your current status. You call your spouse to break the bad news on the way home. They tell you the same just happened to them. What do you do now? These are the Monday scenario type things you can look forward to in the future. Again, today you walk into work, you get called into HR, you're fired. There's no severance. There is only whatever your state pays in unemployment at your current status. You call your spouse to break the bad news on the way home. They tell you the same just happened to them. What do you do now? By the way, if your spouse doesn't have a job, there is no unemployment. If either of you don't qualify for unemployment because you haven't been at your job long enough or you, know, you haven't had consecutive employment long enough, you don't qualify for it. So you have to base it on your real scenario. You can't say you're going to live on your preps if you don't have your preps. You can't say that you're going to call all your contacts if you haven't contacted them recently. Real honest assessment. If this happened to you tomorrow morning, what would you do? How would you deal with it? I think we'll learn more from that than the complete far-out scenarios. We'll see how you guys like it. 
in the. I think I'm going to go back to doing it toward the beginning of the show, though. Anyway, with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Thank you.